will be reading from Exodus chapters 1 and 2 tonight, if you have your Bibles or the text from your study guide so that you can follow along. Last week, we together read the final words of the first book of the Bible. Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. And then we closed the pages of the book of Genesis with the Lord's promises that he had made to Abraham yet to be fulfilled. And it's almost as if when we open the pages of Genesis this week that those first several verses almost seem to remind us of that fact. It begins in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Jebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Natali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died. In regards to the promises that the Lord has made to his people, well, while the family of Abraham had certainly grown, their numbers was nowhere near that of the numbers of the stars in the sky. As for the place that he had promised them, well, they were nowhere near it, and they hadn't been anywhere near it in many, many years by that point. And then as for his presence, for his provision, for his protection of them, well, we can easily see how they even begin to doubt that those promises might be true. And the absence of any mention of God's name at all for the first 16 verses of this book of the Bible almost seems to punctuate that point, as the situation of the Israelites in Egypt went very quickly from bad to worse. So it kind of leaves us wondering, where is God in the story of his people? Do you guys remember maybe as a kid you did these Where's Waldo books? Are you familiar with them? And they've got these pictures, and the pictures are filled with all of these insane amount of details, and you have to so carefully, and you have to so intently, and sometimes for a very, very long time, search for that one guy that you're looking for. Well, sometimes it can feel like that, can't it, when we are looking for God in our lives, and even when we are searching for him in the pages of Scripture. Where is God in the story of his people? One of the things that I find most compelling about scripture is just how refreshingly honest that it is. We are going to drill down hard today on the fact that God is faithfully and continuously present in the lives of his people. But one of the things that I bet I don't even have to tell some of you is that it does not always feel that way at ground zero. Does anybody here understand what I'm saying? It does not always feel that way at ground zero. Scripture allows us and it even encourages us to be honest about those things, but then it always very quickly reorients us to the truth. Verse 7, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous so that the land was filled with them. 
fruitful, increased, multiplied, extremely numerous. The land was filled with them. Does anybody in here think that the author is trying to make a point? In many different times, in as many different ways as he can possibly think to tell us, the author here is telling us that Abraham's family had become a people, and all of a sudden, we're able to spot the Lord. And it's going to be important that we are able to spot the Lord at this point in Scripture because of what's about to happen next. Verse 8. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. So if we were watching this story unfold on a movie screen instead of just reading about it in the book, then this would be the point in the film where that foreboding music began to play very quietly in the background. This verse marks a distinct turning point in the biblical narrative, and it begins with something being forgotten. Joseph was a hero and he was a savior, not only to the Israelites and his own family, but also to the nation of Egypt as a whole. That famine that had forced Israel's family out of Canaan was so severe that we are told in Genesis chapter 41 that all of the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. And that grain only existed in Egypt because of Joseph, because of his insight and because of the wisdom that the Lord had given him and because of his very, very careful planning. And the Egyptians and the Pharaoh at the time absolutely lauded him for this. He was considered a national hero, so much so that when he died, he was given a special burial. He was placed in one of those Egyptian tombs that they they keep above ground. And that is why at the end of Genesis, we see that he told them that his body was not yet allowed to be taken from the land of Egypt. But even the most very influential human is remembered, but for a very brief time. And we see that soon enough, there arose in Egypt a new king who did not even remember Joseph. Verse 9, He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further, and when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. There's probably a better translation of that in some of the other versions. It's overtake. They will overtake or overrun our country. Verse 11 So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all of this work on them. So as this foreign people group grow in the land of Egypt, their existence there becomes increasingly worrisome to the natives of the land. And very sadly, the Egyptian response to the Israelites is actually something that we are understanding of. This is what one commentator said in my studies this week. He said, in a fallen world, hostility to foreigners is unfortunately a common human sin. 
And as we can all attest to, that is something that most definitely we still struggle with in this time, in this place, even today. So this new king uses this broken human inclination to his political advantage, and he very carefully and he very intentionally instills within his people a fear of the Israelites. It is a political power play that has been used over and over and over again in the course of human history. And I want you to notice how Pharaoh does it here. He says, if these Israelites get much bigger, you know, we're going to have a real problem on our hands. And then notice what happens from there. In verse 11, it says, so the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over them. Did you catch that? Who assigned the taskmasters? The Egyptians, not Pharaoh, the Egyptians assigned taskmasters. So Pharaoh planted a seed of fear regarding the Israelites in the minds of his people, and it instantaneously sprouted and grew into harsh treatment of the Israelites by the general Egyptian population. And I want you to be careful to notice where the problem that the Egyptians and Pharaoh had with the Israelites originated. It was with the number of them. So they didn't seem to mind them in the land at all until they simply grew to be too many. And I found it extremely interesting that as the Lord's promises to the Israelites grew to become more visibly true, the Israelites came to be more and increasingly hated and feared. So the plan that the Egyptians instituted against the Hebrews was one of population control. The thought being that if we can slow their growth, if there just aren't too many of them, then they can never pose a real threat to us. Phase one in the Egyptian plan to control the population of the Israelites is slavery. The text tells us that they were oppressed with forced labor. So generally speaking, the oppression of a people group leads to a suppression of their reproduction. But look at verse 12. What does it say happens? It says that the Israelites multiplied in the face of oppression. God knew that this was coming for his people. There is not one twist or turn of the story that remains hidden to him. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, we see that the Lord had even forewarned Abraham that this was coming for the Israelites. 15.13 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God knew. God knew what was coming for them. And so we see that even in the midst of this extreme oppression, the promises of God are still coming to fruition. The fact that things happen that are not according to our plan does not mean that they are not still according to his purpose. 
Human plans submit to the promises and the purposes of God always. Every single time. If you're not sure you believe me quite yet, then let's just keep reading. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shipra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him, but if it is his daughter, she may live. Phase one in the Egyptian plan to control the population of the Israelites had somehow mysteriously seemed to backfire. Instead of lessening the number of Israelites, it seemed to make even more of them magically appear. So Pharaoh is forced to go on to some more drastic measures. Phase two, he quietly pulls the midwives aside and he orders them to execute at birth every male Hebrew baby. Now, I want you to imagine with me the circumstances surrounding the birth of a child at this day and time. When I gave birth to our first son, I promise you that I felt like half of the hospital was in that room watching. I literally remember thinking, well, they may as well just go ahead and install some stadium seating in here so everybody can get a proper view. I could not fathom why they felt it was necessary to have that many people in my room when I felt like I was owed just a tiny bit of privacy but that would not have been the circumstances during this day and time. There were no hospitals, no teams of doctors and nurses, not even a watchful father-to-be. It was the midwife and it was the mother. And in those circumstances, the one delivering the child could very easily take the life of the child without anyone even noticing. And given that the infant mortality rate was so much higher in the days before modern medicine, it probably wouldn't have raised an eyebrow. Pharaoh was quite content to get this job done quietly. And I want you to notice he is so specific in his instructions to them. He says, only the males let the girl live. Hmm. I assume that the thinking was that the boys will turn into men and they are the ones who fight in battles, and whereas women and girls, well, they can be put to any number of good uses. We're going to see very soon how ironic it was that Pharaoh had no worry at all concerning the women in just a few verses. Verse 17, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. I was struck by one commentator's statement as I was studying this week. He wrote, the fear of God is the most important orienting truth available in the world. 
in face of a direct command from the most powerful and ruthless man on earth at the time. It was the fear of the Lord that kept those midwives tethered. It was the fear of the Lord. I don't know where life has taken each and every one of you. I don't know all of your particular stories, but I know that I have found myself in circumstances where it felt like the only option I had before me was the one that I knew was wrong. And because I did not have a proper fear of the Lord at that point in my life, I succumbed to the wrong thing. I gave into fear, and I gave into pressure, and I gave into anxiety, and to all of the very real temporal consequences that were coming straight at me. And I did the wrong thing because fear is a very powerful motivating factor. And it can cause you to do any number of things that you didn't even know that you were capable of doing. And maybe some of you in here tonight understand exactly what it is that I am saying. Many years ago, Psalm 5610 became one of those verses that I just sat down as an anchor in my life. It says, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And we all know that God's honest truth is that humans can think of any number of horrible and despicable and evil things to do to one another, but in the face of the fear of Pharaoh, the midwives rightly feared the eternal consequences of disobeying God more than they feared the very real and very horrific consequences of disobeying Pharaoh. They got it right. The midwives got it right, and in some of the translations, it says that the Lord was pleased with them. That the Lord looked down upon the actions of the midwives and he was pleased with them. And don't you think it was just such beautiful, poetic justice that their deeds were rewarded with children of their own? And then Pharaoh, who indeed was the most powerful man on earth alive at the time, he remains nameless throughout this entire portion of Scripture. Not once does anywhere in Scripture even hint at his name. And that drives the commentators and the historians absolutely crazy because they want so badly to know exactly who this guy was. But I think that we can know for sure that the Lord did that on purpose. Because the names of those two Hebrew midwives, the Lord saw fit to record those. Verse 22, Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Well, I think we have arrived at phase three. 
And the escalation of evil in this passage is absolutely striking. When slavery and oppression doesn't work, Pharaoh commands the boy infants to be discreetly killed at birth by the midwives. And when that doesn't work, then he moves on to a full-out state-sponsored genocide of the infants. I want you to look at verse 22. It says, he commanded all his people. Listen, women, we have some pretty dark things coming at us in these first 15 chapters of Exodus, and I can guarantee you that there are going to be times when together we will cringe at what we see going on. It will hurt, and it will break our hearts to see the things that are happening, not only to the Israelites, like in these first few chapters, but also to the Egyptians as we move along. I mean, there were points in the studying and reading of this section of Scripture where I had to ask the Lord, God, did it have to go down this way? Was there any other way that we could have gotten to this point? So part of my job here today is to lead us to take a very close and a very serious look at what we see going on here so then that we can better understand the actions that the Lord is going to take toward the Egyptians in the weeks to come. You see, I think that as humans, we tend to love the idea of justice, but we often have a very hard time stomaching the actual reality of it. In chapter 1 of Exodus, we see Pharaoh attempting to take the blessings and promises of God upon his people and absolutely twist it into a curse, and you can absolutely rest assured that the Lord is not going to take that lightly. Upon the conception of a child, the Israelite couple would live in dread for a solid nine months. Of the day that that baby was born, because if it was a boy, he would be forcefully removed from the breast of his mother, and he would be murdered. And the method of murder was monstrously calculated. Having the babies thrown into the Nile was, first of all, convenient. The entire population of Egypt was centered around the Nile River. It was close to everyone. Second, it was clean. They could throw the babies in the Nile, and the forceful rush of the great waters would simply take the child away with no mess and no memory of the child left in its wake. And finally, the Nile River served as a scapegoat for both Pharaoh, who ordered the murders, and the Egyptian people who performed them. In Egypt, the Nile River was worshipped as a god. He was acknowledged as both the giver and the taker of life. So psychologically, that made it so much easier for the Egyptians to justify the killing of these children. After all, the fault did not lie on them. It was the fault of the Nile who had demanded it. 
So you need to understand that by this point in the story, Pharaoh did not merely intend to control the population of the Israelites. He absolutely intended to crush their spirits, both individually and collectively. And as we get a little further on in the reading, you are going to see that he absolutely succeeded in doing so. It was a horrific time in the history of these people. And then suddenly, we see several more women enter into the scope of the narrative. Chapter 2. Now, a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. The woman was pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the banks of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the river bank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl, took it, opened it and saw him, the child. And there he was, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman who is nursing to nurse the boy for you? Go, Pharaoh's daughter told her. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. An Israelite couple whose names we actually are going to learn in Exodus chapter 6, they are Amram and Jochebed. They are both descendants from Jacob's son, Levi. And they have a child together, and we're going to learn later on that this is their third child, and he is a boy. And the text tells us that when Jochebed sees that the child is beautiful, other translations say a fine good child. She takes the baby and she hides him so that the Egyptians cannot find him. And this lasts for about three months. And as you all well know, around that time, children tend to get a little too big and a little too noisy to hide. So realizing that she has a problem, she fashions a basket out of papyrus and she places her baby boy in the basket and she sets him gently floating hidden in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. Am I the only one who had a million questions about this section of the text? I mean, where did this idea come from? What was Jochebed thinking? I mean, she had had three solid months to think about the day that that something had to be done. So was she given a dream? Was she given a vision? Was this just a sheer act of desperation? Did she somehow know something of the character of Pharaoh's daughter and where she bathed? We don't know. Scripture does not tell us those things, but this is what we do know, that the word used for basket in verse 3 occurs one other time in the whole of Scripture. And that is in Genesis chapter 6. 
when it is translated ark. And for the second time in the biblical narrative, we see God's people rescued from judgment and delivered unto salvation in an ark brought through the waters. You see, the Lord is continuing a pattern here that will carry us all the way through to Scripture. God takes a place of death, and he turns it into a place of life and salvation. We see it with Noah and the flood. We saw it in Sarah's barren womb. We saw it with Isaac on the altar. We see it with baby Moses in the basket. And we're going to see it again, women, even before we close out this study in November. So it should absolutely come as no surprise to us when we mosey on into the New Testament stories and we read for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew of the Lord taking the tomb of a man who has been beaten and killed and brings forth from it a living, risen Savior. So women, I don't care how dark and deadly your story has turned. We serve a God who has a particular penchant for bringing dead things to life. The Exodus story is our story. There's a couple of more things that I want you to see here. First of all, the motive of the Levite couple. So it would be very easy for us to assume that it was the very great love that Jochebed had for her tiny baby boy that served as her primary motivating factor for defying the king's order. And, and there's no doubt that that absolutely played a huge role in it. But don't you assume that those mothers who lost their babies to the Egyptians loved their sons very much as well? Yeah, so there has to be something else going on here. Hebrews 11.23 sheds some light. It tells us, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the couple was motivated to hide the child because of their faith in God and their fear of him. Right? That verse in Hebrews tells us that they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, I don't think for even half a second that that means that they did not feel afraid because that's lunacy. And, and the Lord does not act us to be lunatics. I think some of you probably need to hear that tonight. The Lord does not ask us to be lunatics, but I think it means that although they felt afraid, most assuredly, because he was very powerful, Pharaoh was, to bring them harm, they felt afraid, but they did not act on them that fear. Because a right fear of the Lord guarded them against the wrong fear of man. And so once again, we see, just like the midwives, that the fear of God is the antidote for the fear of man. 
Second, I want you to notice the juxtaposition here that we see between the horrors that the Egyptian population as a whole was endorsing and the compassion of one particular Egyptian and of all people, the daughter of Pharaoh himself. So in this moment, we see the Lord using to his advantage the nature of things as he has originally intended. Ladies, even when the world around us seems to be broken and falling apart and completely absent and void of any indication of God's original good design, it is still there and we see it evidenced here in this portion of scripture because the Lord had originally designed it so that a woman's heart would be moved to respond to the cry of a baby. And finally, we see the sovereignty of God over the entire situation. One of the very tragic byproducts of Pharaoh's murderous decree would have been that there was probably any number of nursing Hebrew mothers without babies to care for of their own who could have cared for the child Moses, and yet he was delivered into the arms of his very own mother. And this time, we have the ingenuity of yet another woman, a very young one at that, to thank. And this is Miriam, Moses' sister, who we will properly meet in chapter 15. Ladies, it should absolutely come as no surprise to us that God highlights five women as the heroes of this portion of Scripture. It was part of his creative order that women do the exact kind of work that these women were doing in saving the life of Moses, preserving the life of and raising a child. Now, do not hear me say that we cannot and we should not do other things for the kingdom of God. Perhaps you've read the story of a woman named Deborah. We can and we should and we do other things to bring glory to God and his kingdom, but may we never belittle and may we never begrudge the specific work that we have been given in this area. So exactly how long was Moses with his mother? Well, we don't know exactly how long it was, but we do know that it was long enough for him to know who he was. A Hebrew, and we know this because of what comes next. Verse 11. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed them and their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. So his own people, his people. Did you notice that it was there twice in just Verse 11, so we know from chapter 7 of the book of Acts that Moses was 40 years old when he witnessed this injustice. So for decades of his life now, he has lived as Pharaoh's adopted grandson. He has lived as a prince in Egypt. He has lived in the palace. He was educated among the very elite in Egypt, and yet still he somehow considered these Israelites to be his brothers. 
He felt so strongly connected to them that he felt moved and compelled to actually intervene on their behalf. So he sees this injustice against this man that he considers to be his brother, and he is enraged. And then he he looks this way and that to make sure nobody is looking. And that's an important detail because it tells us something. It tells us that although he was identifying with the Israelites privately, he probably was not ready to go all public with it just yet. He wasn't trying to start anything. He wasn't trying to begin an insurrection. He sees this happening. His inner sense of justice is deeply offended. He is enraged. He kills the man, and then he tries to hide it. Verse 13. The next day he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you a commander and judge over us? The man replied, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and he thought, what I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. What is hidden will always become known. And as well-intended as Moses' killing of the Egyptian was on behalf of his Israelite brother, the fact that the Egyptian overseer had been killed had probably resulted in some very harsh penalties being levied against the Israelites. So these people, his brothers, had rejected Moses, and they had rejected his efforts to save them. And if we pause to think about it for a second, I bet we could really understand why. After all, he had spent years now living as a prince in a palace, not laboring beside them as a slave in a field. Moses had not yet shared in their sufferings. They would not accept salvation at his hand. So Moses is forced to flee Egypt because Pharaoh hears of what he has done. And I imagine that when he fled Egypt, that that must have been an extremely dark time in the life of Moses. But if you were with us for the study of Genesis, then a little light bulb should have gone off in your head when you read that last phrase of verse 15. What does it say? He sat down where? By a well. What important meetings happened by wells in the book of Genesis? Do you remember the meeting of Rebekah and Abraham's servant? And then we had the meeting of Jacob and Rachel. So we know that those are not just random meetings, but they are providence in action. And we see that this here must be God's sovereign hand graciously moving behind the scenes of Scripture. Verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then some shepherds arrived and drove them away, but Moses came to their rescue and watered their flock. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he asked, why have you come back so quickly today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. So where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you then leave the man behind? Invite him to eat dinner. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. 
she gave birth to a son whom he named Gershom, for he said, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. So this chunk of text condenses many years of time into just a few verses to kind of help push the story along. So elsewhere in scripture, we learn that just as Moses lived in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life, he lives in Midian for the next 40 years of his life. And the naming of Moses' son, Gershom, leaves us wondering to which foreign country was Moses referring? Was he referring to his years in Egypt as an Israelite? Or was he referring to his years in Midian as an exiled Egyptian prince? When Moses reaches the end of his life, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, he at last and finally comes to the realization that it is neither. That his true homeland is one that he has not even set foot in yet. You can read more about that in Hebrews chapter 11, but that's me jumping just a little too far ahead in the story. Verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor. They cried out, and their cry for help because of the difficult labor ascended to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and God knew. The king of Egypt died, but that did not change the situation of the Israelites. His death brought no relief to them. The Pharaoh had embedded within the hearts of his people hatred toward the Israelites, and that was not something that was simply going to fade away with time. So this series of verbs that we see here at the end of chapter 2 are very significant. So first we see the Israelites. They groaned, they labored, and they cried. These first two chapters of the book of Exodus serve to emphasize for us the severity of the Israelites' situation. These are some of the descriptors that we get. They were worked ruthlessly, lives, bitter, difficult, labor, all kinds of work ruthlessly imposed so that the message that we are left with is clear. The extent of their slavery was intolerable, and their need for deliverance was desperate. And so when the weight of it became too much for them to bear, we see them finally and at last cry out for help. And did anyone else in here at that point in the story think, what took you so long? And I wonder if that might be a question that's appropriate to pose to some of you in here today. Who are burdened under your slavery? What is taking you so long to cry out for help? 
And I need you to notice here that the Israelites did a lot of groaning and crying in these first few chapters, but it is only here at the very end that we see that they cry out, not just in general, but to the Lord. We see in Deuteronomy 26, verse 7, that Moses summarizes this part of the Israelite story, and he wrote, the Egyptians mistreated and depressed us and forced us to do hard labor, so then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. They finally and at last cried out to the Lord, and we see that that cry triggers then a whole other set of verbs. And this time, it is set of actions attributed to the Lord. It says God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So first, God heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant. So to say that God remembered here does not at all mean to imply that he had at one point forgotten, whereas one of the maladies of the human condition is that we have this tendency to forget things God does not forget. So to say that he remembered is to stress his active, faithful determination that his divine promises indeed still are at the forefront of his divine purpose. God remembered his covenant. And although we are woefully inept at it, God has likewise tasked his people with the discipline of remembrance. We see it all the way through scripture. He tells us constantly, remember my name, remember your creator, remember my deeds. Now, why do you think he has to continuously tell us to remember Perhaps you've noticed that we tend to forget those things that we don't remember. But God remembers. God remembers his people even when his people forget their God. And finally, we come to another set of verbs. It says that God saw the Israelites and God knew. Now, we can tell from the text what exactly it is that the Lord saw. God saw their suffering. He saw the abuse and injustice at the hand of the Egyptians. But what exactly was it that God knew? Well, he certainly knew everything that he heard and everything that he saw. But even more than that, God knew them. God knew the Israelites. And and it wasn't just that he was familiar with them. It's that he, he knew them. He foreknew them. He had a knowledge of them. He has a knowledge of us that goes even well beyond us. The Bible tells us that he knows us even before we are us. And all of salvation rests upon that fact, upon the fact of God knowing. So no matter how knee-deep you may be in your slavery right now, whether it is self-inflicted or otherwise, you can rest assured that just like we see here in the story of the Israelites, when your cries for help finally and at last ascend to God, God will hear 
your cries. God will remember his covenant. God will see your suffering. And God knows his people. The Exodus story is our story. So although like our good friend Waldo here, he can sometimes be a little bit difficult to find in the picture, you can rest assured that he is there. And next week, we will get to see the Lord start to move just a little bit more visually into the scope of the scene. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for these closing words of Exodus chapter 2, God. We thank you that you see and that you hear and that you remember and that you know. God, we thank you for the very deep compassion that you have for your people, Lord. We thank you that when we are caught so neck deep in the things that we can't seem to untangle ourselves from, Lord, you always and you faithfully make a way. God, we thank you, God, that you are above all, that you are over all, and even when we can't sense you, even when we can't perceive you, even when it's hard for us to even believe that you are there, you are faithfully and continuously present in the lives of your people. Lord, I ask that you would bring us into greater and greater an understanding of this, God, that you would lead us to love you and to remember you. And we pray all of these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.